Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. So, in case you haven't already guessed, our topic of conversation today is going to be international cartels. Welcome to the Law Pod. I'm Michael Sheeran, a second year law student, and I'm joined today by Dr. Marek Martinshin, an expert in international antitrust law. Welcome to the podcast, Marek. Hello, thanks for having me. It's good to be with you. By way of introduction, I would just like to ask you, the listener, to ponder this question. What do your computer, TV, and car most likely all have in common. While you think about that, I'd like to bring in Marek at this point to help us shed some light on this issue and briefly outline the topic for today's discussion. Sure, what connects this as well as many other products is that the various components were subject to price fixing among producers. This means that the end users of finished products, the consumers, were being overcharged. Such agreements among competing firms are called cartels. Cartels are designed to limit or virtually eliminate competition between participating firms. The aim is, of course, to artificially increase prices and, in effect, to increase profits for the participating firms without producing any objective benefits. Cartels are more common and easier to organize among producers of homogeneous goods, especially in markets with high concentration where there are fewer players. Because in such environment, it is easier to coordinate and implement such illegal conduct among firms, which otherwise would be competing with one another. You've just uh, outlined there, Mark, the, uh, the basic concept of uh, cartels. Uh, so what kind of goods and products are, are primarily affected by them? In fact, virtually all goods and products can be affected by operation of cartels. The most straightforward example would be price fixing. So firms producing the same product would agree not to sell it below certain agreed price. This way, they would be artificially raising it. But cartel conduct doesn't have to deal directly with price. For example, cartelists may share markets or customers. They would agree not to compete with each other in their respective territories. Again, with the objective to raise prices and deprive consumers of the benefits of competition in the marketplace. Bit rigging is another example of cartel conduct. In this case, instead of competing for a contract to provide goods or services, colluding firms would, for example, agree their bids in advance, deciding which firm will submit the lowest bid, while making sure that the lowest bid is above the competitive level. Again, in effect, they would overcharge consumers. In terms of practicalities, this would be often senior managers, often sales managers, meeting informally in various places, often in secrecy, to talk about and agree on such illegal activities. So now that you've uh, outlined the uh, mechanics by which these cartels operate, in your view, what is their impact on the average everyday consumer? The impact on the average consumer can be huge. 
we are talking about two-digit markups on prices, so about artificially inflating prices by 2030 on your 40%. And again, cartels affect all sorts of products or services. So, for example, in 2016 and 17, the European Commission discovered a cartel between producers of trucks involving large companies such as Scania, MAN, Volvo and Daimler. Together, these firms account for 9 out of 10 medium and heavy truck produced in Europe. They were part of a cartel for 14 years. Yes, 14 years. And instead of competing with each other, they colluded on prices against consumers. There are nearly 30 million trucks on European roads, which account for around three quarters of all the inland transport of goods in Europe. Therefore, they play an important role in the European economy. In line with the EU rules on sanctioning, these firms were fined nearly 4 billion euros for their participation in this cartel. To give you another example, also recently, competition agencies in a number of countries discovered and punished a cartel among producers of LCD screens, which are used in mobile phones, tablet and laptop computers, which almost all of us use every day. In this case, the cartelists were based in Southeast Asian countries, but their illegal activities inflated the cost of finished products all over the world. Apart from fines, for participating firms, some countries provide sanctions for individuals involved in cartel activities. For example, in the UK, an individual can go to jail. The maximum penalty is five years imprisonment and or an unlimited fine. Recently, the UK competition watchdog, the Competition Market Authority, investigated suspected cartel in the supply of products to the construction industry. The investigation focused on concrete pipes. In effect of that investigation, last September, one senior manager pleaded guilty to a criminal cartel offence, and he was sentenced to two years' imprisonment, suspended for two years, and he was also disqualified from acting as a company director for seven years. Marek, you mentioned a number of uh, international examples just there. I would like to then uh, follow on by asking you, what has been the nature of the international approach and response to this uh, ongoing issue? Although anti-competitive activities, such as cartels, stretch beyond a single country, we still do not have international competition law. There is no international court or international mechanism to deal with such harmful conduct, affecting consumers in many countries. There were proposals to give the World Trade Organization the mandate to deal with such issues, but for a variety of reasons, that did not happen. The problems we are facing in this area largely relate to the fact that we are currently using domestic law to tackle a transnational phenomenon. In the last three decades, great many countries enacted competition laws. Currently, well over 100 countries have competition laws. While these domestic laws differ, when it comes to cartels, there is a consensus that such agreements are very harmful and should be prohibited. And all competition laws I'm aware of prohibit such practices like price fixing among competitors on the domestic market. However, the spread of competition law internationally doesn't resolve the issue when it comes to international cartels, because quite often local consumers will be suffering from harm arising from operation of cartels among foreign firms, firms located somewhere else. Like in case of LCD screens, the cartel operated in Southeast Asia, but it affected consumers also over here in the European Union. So based on what you've just said, the... It's quite clear then that cartels represent a truly global problem. 
So how then have different legal jurisdictions approached this problem? Over time, many countries started applying their domestic competition laws to such foreign cartels. In a nutshell, most countries seek to apply their laws also to foreign anti-competitive conduct, such as cartels, whenever such conduct causes some non-negligible harm on their domestic market. This, of course, is not easy. First of all, it may be very difficult to discover such prohibited arrangements, and the necessary evidence may be located abroad. And finally, it may be very difficult to enforce any decisions and judgments against foreign violators. Therefore, these cases are quite complicated. Now, they are easier for larger jurisdictions, such as the EU, because foreign cartelists are more likely to have assets there, and overall they are more likely to comply. And these cases are more difficult for less influential jurisdictions, because they may not have the same or similar resources to successfully investigate such cases. So in this area of law, how would you assess the state of play when it comes to international cooperation and collaboration? Largely to tackle some of the challenges relating to these international cases, international community developed various collaborative instruments. So many countries concluded international, typically bilateral uh, cooperation agreements. And thanks to them, many agencies may now exchange knowledge, uh, develop trust, and sometimes even coordinate enforcement, inclusive of amounts inspections. Some of these agreements, but not many, are more advanced and more sophisticated, allowing for more specific forms of cooperation. For example, the UK and the US concluded an extradition treaty, which may be used to extradite an individual from one country to face criminal competition law charges in the other jurisdiction. But this is a quite a unique solution. There are also cooperation uh, opportunities on broader multilateral forums. The largest forum is the International Competition Network. That's a virtual network of competition agencies bringing together officials from well over 100 countries. Another leading forum is the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, which particularly focuses on the needs of developing countries. Now, cooperation in this multilateral forum focuses largely on dissemination of good practices and know-how. It is very valuable, but unfortunately, it doesn't provide assistance in particular cases and doesn't deal with one of the key difficulties of such cases related to obtaining and passing on evidence located in another country. So at this point in the discussion, I think it's uh, quite evident that cartels represent a serious ongoing problem. So what are the major impediments in your view to uh, progress in tackling these cartels? That's a very good question, Michael. Large part of the problem relates to the growing sophistication of cartels themselves. It is more and more difficult to discover them. In response to that, competition agencies develop and are developing new tools to up their game. For example, most countries operate so-called leniency programs. These are programs for whistleblowers. Under um, a leniency program, a member of a cartel can blow the whistle, inform the competition agency about it, and avoid facing sanctions for its own involvement in exchange for providing evidence which will enable to impose sanctions for other cartel members. Marek, based on the understanding that cartels represent a truly global problem, how have different national jurisdictions approached this problem, in your view? Well, given the lack of an international solution, many countries started applying their domestic competition laws to transnational anti-competitive conduct, such as international cartels. This is what we call extraterritorial application of law, 
or extraterritoriality, for short. I had the opportunity to study this phenomenon in considerable detail, and I continue analyzing international practice in this regard. It is fair to say that the United States was the first country to apply its competition law extraterritorially. Initially, this was quite controversial, but with time, extraterritoriality became the norm, and most countries provide for it in their laws and jurisprudence. While different countries take slightly different approaches, most jurisdictions seek to apply their competition laws to anti-competitive conduct, including to foreign cartels, whenever such conduct causes some non-negligible harm on the domestic market. In other words, whenever the anti-competitive conduct in question causes some effects in the jurisdiction. In legal terms, we call it the effects doctrine. That's the jurisdictional principle. The extent to which domestic competition law can be applied to foreign conduct continues to evolve, probably reflecting growing sophistication of such violations. It is really a fascinating issue. So, Mark, could you maybe provide us with an example of any recent developments in this area of law? Sure. Only last September, the Court of Justice of the European Union, the EU's highest court, delivered an important judgment in this area. Intel, a US company and a chip maker, made an agreement with Lenovo, a Chinese producer of laptops. Under this agreement, Intel attempted to foreclose the market to its main competitor, AMD. In particular, Intel paid Lenovo to delay, restrict, or even cancel marketing of Lenovo laptops with chips produced by the AMD. In effect, the consumers in many countries, including in Europe, were deprived of the benefits of competition in this area by not having access to Lenovo's laptops with AMD chips, and the European market was being foreclosed to AMD. Therefore, the European Commission, the EU Competition Watchdog, found that Intel abused its dominant position in the market and imposed a severe fine on Intel. Intel, of course, wasn't happy with it and challenged that decision before the EU courts, arguing that its agreement with Lenovo was beyond the reach of EU law. The Court of Justice didn't agree. It was held that whenever conduct has foreseeable, immediate and substantial effects on the EU, the EU law applies. Was the take-home lesson? This case confirms that EU competition law applies beyond its shores whenever EU market is affected and the, juris- and the judgment clearly recognizes two tests that are relevant in this regard. Moreover, the court clarified that foreign violators will not avoid the reach of EU law simply by managing not to sell their products directly in the EU. It is a welcome development as it further clarifies the position of EU law on this issue and most importantly, it is a good judgment for consumers in the EU. It sends a strong signal that anti-competitive conduct will not be tolerated in the EU market. Now, let me go back to the generally recognized principle that a state can apply its domestic law extraterritorially whenever its market has been affected. The principle of relying on the effects of the conduct in question to trigger prohibition has somewhat perverse consequences. Whenever a cartel produces anti-competitive effects only abroad, on foreign markets, it would not fall under the scope of prohibition, and therefore it would be legal in the home jurisdiction. This is the case of so-called export cartels. The illegality under most, if not all, domestic competition laws is quite striking. Virtually all states agree that cartels are very harmful to the economy. Their harmful nature is so clear that once the EU competition commissioner, Mario Monti, called cartels to be cancer on the market economy. At the same time, whenever a domestic cartel harms only foreign markets, it is considered legal. 
Myself and various other scholars who have extensively researched this issue call for a more cosmopolitan solution, an ending of this rather shameful tolerance of such agreements. Just to follow up on that, Mark, how would you say the dealing with the foreign cartels differs from the investigation of similar domestic violations? Well, such international cases tend to be more complex. First of all, it is not easy to uncover any cartel. It may be even more difficult to discover an international one. When it comes to investigation, the necessary evidence will often be located abroad and may be very difficult to get hold of it. Should this hurdle be overcome, there is then the question of enforcement of any decisions and judgments against foreign violators. If they do not have assets in the enforcing jurisdiction, and if the enforcing jurisdiction is not important enough as a market for the violators, they may decide to abandon it rather than to comply. Hence, such international cases tend to be easier for larger jurisdictions, such as the EU, US, or China, which recently started to be very active in this space. Foreign violators are more likely to comply with any outcomes of investigations in such jurisdictions. I should also note that these cases are more difficult for less experienced competition agencies, because they may not have the sufficient resources and expertise to effectively deal with them. And this is why international collaboration in this area is so important. So how would you then assess the state of play when it comes to international collaboration in these matters? Well, largely to tackle some of the challenges relating to these international cases, international community developed various collaborative instruments. Many countries concluded typically bilateral cooperation agreements with their key partners. Thanks to them, agencies of both states may now exchange know-how, develop trust, and sometimes even coordinate enforcement, inclusive of unannounced inspections. Some of these agreements, but not many, are more advanced and allow for more specific forms of cooperation. For example, under the recently revised agreement between the EU and Switzerland, competition watchdogs in both jurisdictions can now exchange confidential information and evidence in relation to cases they both work on. To give you another example, the US and UK concluded an extradition treaty which may be used to extradite an individual from one country to face criminal competition law charges in the other jurisdiction. This is possible because both the US and UK use criminal sanctions to deal with cartel conduct. Now, apart from bilateral agreements, there is also cooperation in broader multilateral forums. The largest forum is the International Competition Network. That's a virtual network of competition agencies bringing together officials from well over 100 countries. I'm a non-governmental advisor to the ICN, and I must say I continue to be very impressed by the sophistication of the interactions in this framework between enforcers. Another leading forum is the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, known as UNCTAD. It particularly focuses on the needs and perspectives of developing countries. It offers the much-needed technical assistance and capacity building. Such activities include trainings for judiciary, officials and practitioners in developing countries. UNCTAD also created a research partnership platform, a framework for research activities with particular focus on developing countries. I'm currently running such a project with UNCTAD and I find it extremely helpful in terms of reaching out to the key stakeholders, allowing me to better understand the challenges faced by developing countries. Overall, cooperation on this multilateral forums focuses largely on dissemination of good practices and know-how. It is very valuable from this perspective. 
Unfortunately, it doesn't provide assistance in particular cases and does not deal with one of the key difficulties of such cases related to obtaining and passing on evidence located in another country. Well, so there is still much work to be done in this area. For example, the fact that transnational cartels often affect more than one jurisdiction means that there may be potentially more expert pairs of eyes searching for them. A cartel in one country may suggest there is the same or similar cartel just across the border. Therefore, it is important for competition agencies to establish and nourish relationships with counterparts in neighboring countries and to closely follow the enforcement efforts. To make it easier, agencies should publish, preferably also in English, information about their enforcement activities to enable others to learn from them. In the current fragmented regulatory patchwork, the persistent gaps in communication between enforcers may allow violators to avoid liability. These gaps persist despite the overall growth in interactions between agencies, suggesting that not all agencies participate in these processes to the same extent. The existing international cooperation platform, such as the ICN, UNCTAD, continue to play a very important and valuable role. However, there still seems to be a need for information clearing houses, which would collect and distribute information about cartel enforcement and activities among interested agencies. For example, by drawing from the uh, experience of dissemination of information within the EU, within the European Competition Network. A major information clearing house would streamline the process and offer significant time savings for all involved. When we look at the issue of international cartels in big picture terms, which factors have made the ongoing problem difficult to address? That's a very good question. Large part of the problem relates to the growing sophistication of cartels. It is more and more difficult to discover them. And in response to that, competition agencies are developing new tools to up their game. For example, most countries operate so-called leniency programs. These are programs for whistleblowers. Under a leniency program, a member of a cartel can blow the whistle, inform the competition agency about it, and avoid facing sanctions for its own involvement in exchange for providing evidence which will enable to impose sanctions on the other cartel members. The existence of the leniency programs in itself is intended to destabilize cartels. Firms deciding to engage in such prohibited activities need to remember that any of their co-conspirators may cheat on them anytime and avoid facing sanctions. But leniency is not the only tool used by competition watchdogs in their work. For example, some jurisdictions offer also financial rewards for informants. Such rewards are available also in the UK. An informant may receive up to £100,000 for sharing such information with the competition market authority. The underlying idea is that such rewards enhance enforcement by making it possible to discover and sanction cartels which would otherwise go undetected. But in general, using smart tools is just one way in which competition agencies are dealing with cartels. On top of that, in the recent years, we have seen a significant push for more severe sanctions for violations of competition law. Jurisdictions which use only corporate fines, such as the EU, started imposing higher fines on cartelists. Some other jurisdictions, such as the UK, decided to criminalize cartel conduct and to use the severe sanction of incarceration, this all being done to deter future violations. But of course, when it comes to specifically fighting international cartels, more can be done to improve the system. 
for example, at the moment an international cartel needs to be proven anew in each and every jurisdiction that attempts to sanction it. So, for example, when the international cartel affects consumers in the EU, US, and some other jurisdiction, agencies in all of them need to investigate it if they want to sanction it. That's a huge waste of resources. Think about the cost of duplication. In one of my recent papers, I argued that agencies, as well as private plaintiffs, should be able to rely on decisions and judgments from countries which have already investigated such a particular cartel, and they should be able to use a foreign decision or foreign judgment as evidence of the existence of the cartel in question. This would prevent us from rediscovering what have already been established, requiring the enforcers or private plaintiffs only to show the existence and potentially the extent of the harm on the local market. This is just one of the ways in which we could tighten up the current regulatory regime to preserve the level playing field for all the firms and more competitive outcomes for all of us, the consumers. That's great, Marek. Well, thank you very much for your participation in today's podcast uh, concerning a, a very relevant uh, ongoing modern issue. I find that to be very interesting and hopefully our listeners did too. Thank you, Michael. It's always fun to talk about competition. You've been listening to LawPod, an informed take on current events, brought to you by the law students and staff at Queen's University Belfast. This episode today was produced by Michael Sheeran and Richard Somerville. Our theme music is by Colonel Chocolate and the Justice Triangle. LawPod is funded by Queen's Law School and the Queen's Annual Fund. Thanks to Dr. Marek Martinson, our, our guest today. You can follow us on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter at QUB LawPod. For more information, you can also visit our website, lawpod.org. And please have a look in the show notes for more information about some of the topics covered today. You can find us on iTunes or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. I'm Michael Sheeran, and this was LawPod.